tonight we're talking about sola scriptura. Uh, so we're going to condense 500 years of established church doctrine in like 25 minutes. It'd be really easy. Uh, before I do that, I think it's really important to, to just say that we're really not even condensing 500 years into 25 minutes. If you believe the Bible, we're condensing since the Bible until now into 25 minutes because sola scriptura is not something that the reformers invented or, or a way that they, something they discovered about how to read the Bible and, and what the Bible is for us. Uh, if, if you go back into church history, you find guys like Augustine saying a lot of the same stuff. Um, what, what happened, incidentally, is that the, the, the church, the now today known as the Roman Catholic Church, totally distorted the way that, that Christians had understood Scripture for, for years and years and years. And over time, maybe not in, intentionally, but, but over time, um, things eroded, right? Things fell apart, and, and the church started to drift from seeing Scripture as the only authority or the highest authority uh, in the church and for the Christian, and started to see other things as on par with, maybe even greater than, Scripture. And, and so when we talk tonight about sola scriptura, we're, we're talking about, yeah, the Reformation and, and, and Martin Luther and, and all that. When we talk about sola fide and gratia and, and soli deo gloria, all these things got a sort of rebirth at the Reformation, but, but they were around long before that. I hope, I hope as we go through this, we'll see that more clearly. So um, let me pray for us, and uh, we'll, we'll get to it. Father, we are grateful uh, to be able to gather here together. I, I don't think we realize often enough, uh, if at all, what a privilege it, it is that we can gather together in our own language, um, around your word, written in our own language, being, being preached by, by, by people or, or even one another, not, not by the, the experts and, and, and the scholars of this age or of, or of any age, but, but your word as, as it is understood by, by your people. People that you have qualified to read and interpret your Bible, not, not based on paperwork or the opinions of man, but, but because of your Holy Spirit who resides in each of us. Lord, I pray that tonight we would not lose sight of the truth that for, for so long, your people were wandering in the dark. But because of your love for us, you've given us a, a true word written down, passed down through the generations, uh, and understandable, comprehensible for us today. You have revealed yourself to us. Pray that we wouldn't take that for granted pray that we would maximize that, that we would study your word, and that we would, we would find great joy um, being able to come to you, to commune with you through scripture and through your son, Jesus, who is the word of God. So be with us now. Amen. 
All right. Um, I guess I'd like to start by just uh, looking at a, a brief episode from, from church history, from Reformation history in particular. Um, Martin Luther is really well known for this particular doctrine, sola scriptura. Uh, we think a lot about him when we talk about it, but you could talk about any of the reformers. You could talk about Calvin or Zwingli or, or even some lesser known guys, Menno Simons, right, the founder of the Mennonites or the forefather of the Mennonites. Uh, it's, it's all over that period of time. People in the Renaissance were going back to the sources, as they said. They rediscovered Greek philosophy, and, and they had no idea that this stuff existed. They came out of the, the Dark Ages where they, well, they were dark. And, and on the other side, they found ancient things, truths. And among those things was the Bible. But, but it didn't just start with Luther and his peers. It, it even begins before those guys. There are forerunners to the Reformation who rediscovered the Bible and actually became the foundation upon which guys like Luther and others would build. So when we talk about the Bible and the rediscovery of Scripture, we have to talk about guys like John Huss, whose last name means goose, by the way. Uh, from, from Bohemia, and he's around, I don't know, two, three hundred years before Luther even. But, but guys like Huss or Wycliffe, the Englishman, right? These men who uh, in some cases were, were killed actually to try by, before bringing the Bible uh, to the people in their own language, who valued the Bible above popes and councils and, and traditions of the church. And so uh, in, in, in Luther's day, he is brought before several of these councils and, and what are called diets and trials um, because the things that he has to say are uh, deemed heretical by the, the church of his day. And uh, so I found this, this, this little episode here in, in that, that, um, in that, from that time. And if you remember, maybe if you've heard even just a little bit about Martin Luther, one of the things that he's really well known for is a statement uh, at a particular diet, the Diet of Worms, uh, in which, uh, it's spelled like worms, but I refuse to say that because it just, it always makes me take it less seriously. Anyway, so he, uh, he's there and he is being put on trial for a whole host of things, but he, he ends his trial here with, by, by saying, uh, you know, I, I am held captive by the word of God and it's, it's neither right nor is it safe for me to go against my conscience on this. I've got to hear, I've got to listen to, and only follow what the Word says. And we think about that as this, as this pivotal moment in the Reformation. But even before that, uh, he, he was saying things like that. Luther's decisive break, and this, by the way, comes from a helpful book. We don't have it in the resource room, but it's called The Theology of the Reformers, written by a guy named Timothy George. It's been around for 25, 30 years. It's really great, but he records this in there. Luther's decisive break from the Church of Rome came not at the Diet of Worms when he declared his conscience captive to the word of God, but two years earlier at something called the Leipzig Debate, which is in 1519, just to get your mind wrapped around where we're at in time here. His opponent was the infamous and very able John Eck, whose name in German means corner, hence the saying that at Leipzig, John Eck 
boxed Luther into a corner. That's the way this was interpreted at the end of it all, that, that Luther had found himself on the ropes. He was backed up. There was no turning back. There was no way out either. Eck accused Luther of advocating certain theses of a man named John Huss, which had been condemned a hundred years before at another council for which Huss had been burned at the stake. And among the things that Huss valued and the things that, that caused Huss to be such a troublemaker is that, is that Huss valued the Bible more than any word from anybody else. He started to question things like indulgences. He started to question the, the fallibility of popes and councils and, and really wanted to steer away from those things and toward the word of God, which he had recently for himself started to read. And so they, they killed him for it, as, as, as providence would have it. Although Luther protested that he was not defending Huss, because at this time in Luther's own development, right, he, he wasn't willing to break from the church. He, he, just thought he, he just thought he would bring to light that maybe the church has shifted in some ways and we need to get back to some things. He's not trying to shut things down just yet. And so he says, no, I'm not, I'm not like Huss. I'm not with him. No, 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 you're misunderstanding. He protested. He wasn't defending him, but Eck kept pressing him on that point. And during the lunch break, which is funny to think about, during some theological trial, they, they pause. All right, let's go get some sandwiches, some sauerkraut and, and brats, I guess. They, they sit down and, and Luther starts to, to consider, he starts to look at the records and says, okay, well, what actually did Huss believe? I do want to make sure that I'm, I'm right here. He found out that he actually had been advocating the very same position as Huss, right? Which is a terrifying thing when, when the guy who's previously held this view about the Bible is condemned and burned at the stake, right? You, you realize that over your lunch break, you stop eating and you think, how can I get out of this, smooth things over? What can I say to, to maybe shift the direction of this trial? So in the afternoon session, Luther returns and he astonishes the whole assembly by declaring, in effect, yeah, ich bin ein Hussite, which means in German, yeah, I'm with the goose, right? I'm with the Huss. I'm with him. I don't know what to tell you. You were right. I was wrong. I'm a heretic. And, and so he, he's boldly declaring this. And so now Luther really is in a corner. Eck had forced him to ally himself with a condemned heretic to repudiate the authority of general councils as well as that of the Pope. For Luther, the old pillars of authority had been shattered. Thenceforth, his whole theology was erected on the foundation of sola scriptura. In one of the writings that Luther wrote, he says this principle, what is asserted without the scriptures or proven revelation may be held as an opinion, but need not be believed. So, so that's, to give you an idea, there was a point in time where that was unfathomable. Just think about that. Luther here says, the Bible is the highest authority that there is. If you say something to me and, and you can't back it up with scripture, but instead choose to back it up with a council or a pope, I got nothing for you. I have no ears for that. I'm not wasting my time with, with that. There was a time where that was considered scandalous, outrageous. 
This is the same time when the Bible wasn't in English. It, it wasn't in Italian or Spanish. There were no Braille Bibles. No, the Bible was, was well, for them in Latin, which interestingly enough is still not the original language of the Bible. And, and, and you know how many people understood Latin at the time? Not, not many. It wasn't exactly the common language of your day-to-day working class minor or, or maiden or, or mother of, at the time, you know, seven or eight kids, right? That, that, that's, not, that's not what they spoke. They would go to worship and, and, and the priest would read scripture out loud. Sometimes the priest himself would not know what he was reading because he didn't know Latin, let alone the people in the congregation there's no biblical counsel going on. You know, there's no pastoral care involving sitting down, pouring over Scripture with, with hurting people who need to hear from the Lord. That's not happening. I think it's really important for us to see that. Even maybe more important than to fully understand what sola scriptura even means. <laughs> because, because this is certainly what it does not mean. Right, that the Bible is inaccessible or unavailable to us, or, or, that, or that in order for us to, to come to the Bible, we need someone else to stand in between us and it because it's, it's too powerful, it's too much. And, and yet for, for centuries, that's what the church believed. So John Huss, Martin Luther, the, the question about the Bible, the question about sola scriptura, the thing that we have to get down to the bottom of, the question that we have to answer is this. Is the Bible the only infallible source of revelation from God? Or can, can we count on church, church tradition, popes, and councils to even things out? What's more important, in other words? And, and, and to that day, the assumption was that, yeah, the Bible's infallible. Absolutely, the Bible's important. It's inerrant. It's inspired. It's God's word. But on the same par, our popes, the things that they say, um, councils, the things that they establish and codify and write down and set for us to believe, the doctrine that they put forward, all of it, is, is equally valuable for the church. Sola Scriptura asserts something different, though. The, the doctrine, if we want to define it, and I, I'm not going to have it on the screen, but I'll, I'll say it a couple times if you want to write it down. Um, the, the doctrine of Sola Scriptura can be summarized like this. The Bible alone is the Word of God and the only infallible rule of faith and practice. The Bible alone is the word of God. And the only infallible rule of faith and practice. In other words, you want to hear what God thinks. You want to know what God's will is. You want to to learn the truth about the gospel, about what God has done through his son. You have to go to the Bible. You want to know how to live the Christian life? You want to know what faith looks like and, and what we're called to do and, and be and act? How we're called to, 
to think as believers in this world. You want to know that? You want to know what a church, a church should look like, how it should be structured, what, all of those things? You go to the Bible. So let's, let's look at some terms here. The Bible is inspired. It's not inspiring, you know, like a, a work of art, a poet or something like that. It's not, oh, you know, eureka moment as you read the Bible and you're inspired to, to do something and you're given motivation. No, it's not inspiring. The Bible is inspired. And maybe even a better word for it is that the Bible is expired. It's, it's breathed out, not expired as in gone bad. But, but, you know, when we read 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, if you want to turn there with me, this is a a classic passage that, that we turn to, right, to, to think about this doctrine. It says this, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Did you catch that? All scripture is breathed out. It's expired. Right? It's the Lord. He has, he has breathed out truth. And, and it's almost as if the writers of Scripture just kind of caught it, right? They, they, just, they just managed to snag it in the pages of the Word of God that they, even as they were writing, that the Lord was superintending all of that in such a way where they were actually capturing God's thoughts, God's decrees, what God values, and the doctrine that we believe. The Bible's inspired, the Bible's infallible. Right? It, it, which, which means the Bible is, is unable to err, E-R-R. It, it cannot, it will not be proven wrong. And all that the Lord sets out to do through his word, all that he seeks to communicate to us, he will prove right and true and helpful. But then there's another term we need to think about, which is this, that the Bible is inerrant, which you would think, well, that sounds an awful lot like it can't err, which isn't that what you just, that what you just said, that, that the Bible is infallible, it, it's unable to err, it will not err. Yeah, okay, but, but there's actually a little bit of a nuance here. I want to help you understand it. R.C. Sproul, he, uh, he, he writes in a really helpful book, it's called What is Reformed Theology? And he summarizes the five solas, and when he summarizes sola scriptura, he, he writes something, he says, I could score a 100 on a test, right? And you would say that I was inerrant. In that moment, on that test, I was inerrant. I mean, no mistakes, no errors. I got 100% of the questions correct. But would you say that I'm infallible at the end of that? That I will never, ever get an answer wrong on any test ever presented to me from this point forward? No, you wouldn't say that. That would be illogical. It doesn't necessarily have to be true, right? When we talk about the Bible, we're saying that the Bible is, is 100% right, right now. But not only that, that it, that it will always prove to be true. That will always, forever, for God's people, prove to be the only source of, the only rule of faith and practice. And, and, and the only way we hear and receive the, the word of God until, until we finally, right, are face to face with the word himself, who is Jesus. A few other thoughts then about the Bible. The Bible is supreme. Right? When we talk about sola scriptura, what we're saying is that the Bible is, is supreme. It's the ultimate authority for our doctrine, for our practices, the things that we do as believers, what, what church looks like, for example. But the Bible is also supreme when it comes to interpretation. Even the way we interpret the Bible has to be shaped and framed by the way the Bible interprets the Bible. 
And so when you run into snags in scripture and things don't make sense and, or you find a verse that if you just lifted it out of its context would say some difficult or troubling things, it's not enough just to take that and run with it, right? We want to compare it to the rest of scripture. We want to let scripture help rein that in and, and give us guidance on what what it really means, what, what are all the ways in which this statement may actually be limited, right? So the Bible interprets itself, and one of the most obvious ways is like when we're reading the New Testament, and we see the New Testament authors referring to the Old Testament, and, and, and the ways that they see things in the Old Testament that, that we think, well, I didn't quite see that. How'd you get, how'd you get there? How, how do you know that Jesus is the, 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 the son of David? What, what do you mean by that? The Old Testament never says that. Well, no, but the New Testament writers, by the Holy Spirit, they, they saw, they interpret, they see the Old Testament for what it is, and they show us then likewise how to interpret it. And, and that's true of the whole Bible. How we interpret all of it needs to be compared to, to itself. The Bible is also sufficient. And, and one of the passages I love to, to consider when I talk about the sufficiency of Scripture is 2 Peter chapter 1. <clears throat> if you want to turn there with me, it says this. If you look at verse 3 and 4, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire." The Lord, through the knowledge of him, and I would say specifically the knowledge of him that, that really can only be known through scripture, the Lord has, has revealed to us all that is needed for life and godliness. You want to grow in your walk with the Lord. You, you, you want to know better who Jesus is. You want to understand more fully what he's done You've been given all that you need for life and godliness through the knowledge of God, which he has given to us and preserved for us through his word. This is, this is what sola scriptura means. Now, there, there are some ways that we can misunderstand this. I'll just run through a few here. And, and by the way, a lot of this I, I've, I've been, uh, what, what we're about to talk about, I've, I've lifted a little bit generously uh, from a class that I took on this at, at RTS. Um, I mean, what, what, what are we going to do? Reinvent the wheel here? This doctrine's been around for centuries, so it is what it is. Better people than me have figured this out. Let's talk about some misunderstandings. Well, okay, sola scriptura then, it must mean that only the Bible contains truth. No, that's, that's a misunderstanding. We're not saying when we talk about sola scriptura, the Bible alone, that only the Bible contains truth. Right? There are plenty of resources for truth in this world that, that are outside of scripture. They don't conflict with scripture. Right? But you want to know about DNA? You're not going to find it in the Bible. But you can learn about DNA through other sources. Right? We can find things that are true outside of scripture. That's not necessarily opposed to sola scriptura. How about this? The Bible tells us everything we need to know. No. I mean, there's some things that you need to know that the Bible's not going to tell you. Now, are, is it going to tell you, is, is it going to leave things out that you need to know for, for life and godliness? No. 
Right? But, but, but there are other things, right, that, that we need to know for just life and existence in this world. You need to keep breathing. We're not going to find that in the Bible necessarily. You know, it's not the 11th commandment, thou shalt never stop breathing. But, no, it, we, we, there's some things that we need to, that we will find outside of Scripture to be, to be true. Um, how about this? The Bible is all you need to be saved. Well, that, that's a little tricky. But we're, we're not saying that that we all, if, as long as I've got a Bible, as long as I'm familiar with the words of the Bible, that I, I've got everything I need. No, no, we need, we're actually saved by Christ, first of all. We, we need him. There's actually coming a day, have you thought about this, when, when the Bible will become, I don't know what, maybe this is an unhelpful phrase, but it'll become obsolete. Right? There's coming a day where we will no longer need the Bible to commune with God. We'll no longer require the Bible to understand his thoughts. There's coming a day where revelation will no longer be as mysterious to us as it is now. That day is coming. We need more than the Bible for salvation. But when it comes to life and godliness, when it comes to faith and practice, when it comes to what is the word of God to us today, right now, it's the Bible alone. Or how about this, the Bible is the only authority. When you talk about sola scriptura, you're saying, you're telling me the Bible is the only authority in the Christian's life. Not, not councils, not church tradition. Those things have no authoritative role whatsoever. Well, no, that's not sola scriptura either. When we talk about these other things, these other means that the Lord has given his people, church tradition, for example, or or councils and creeds. Think about the Apostles' Creed. Um, th- those things, they, they stand on, on Scripture very often, right? They, they, they come to Scripture and then they, they refract it back to us in a way that is sensible and, and systematized and organized. And so we, we, we do benefit from those things. In fact, in some ways, we kind of do need those things. But when it comes, again, to, to the gist of it all, to, to, to really understanding what the Lord requires and expects of us, we we, we we don't. And yet, consider an example from Luther's own life. You know, Luther was uh, really well known for his prayer life, and he would go to his barber on a regular basis, and his barber one day stops him and says, hey, you know what? I'm a little frustrated. I, I feel like my prayer life's just not what it, what it needs to be. I don't really know how to pray. In fact, can you tell me how to pray? And, and Luther said, you know what? Yeah, I'll come back to you. Uh, and, and, and we'll talk about this. And, and Luther wrote down a treatise, like a whole pamphlet about how to pray. I think he called it how to pray. And, and he gave it to his barber. And the instructions that he gave him were really simple. He said, look, if you want to pray better, if you want to pray more in line with the will of God, then, then there are a few things you can do. Right? You, can, you can pray through the Lord's Prayer right, that Jesus gives us. It's, a great, it's the model prayer for a reason. You, know, don't, you don't necessarily have to repeat it verbatim, word for word, back to God, but you can, you can riff on it, kind of like a, a jazz artist. You can, you can look at this, and you can take it and dissect it and, and pull it apart and meditate on it. Think about each piece of it and pray that to the Lord. Or you can go to the Ten Commandments. You can assess yourself based on the Ten Commandments and where you fit. But not only you know, have I lived up to this or not, but is there a way in which I can glorify the Lord for this truth that I find here, right? Is there a, a thing that I can thank God for? Is there something I need to confess? Certainly, is there something I need to request of the Lord by looking at the Ten Commandments? But there's a third thing that Luther tells his barber to study and, and know when he prays. And it's the Apostles' Creed. 
Luther practically reinvented Sola Scriptura, and he's telling his barber, you ought to think about using the Apostles' Creed to help yourself pray better. Yeah, that and the Lord's Prayer. So, so Sola Scriptura can't be that, that we have just no regard for these other things, these other institutions that, that help us to summarize and systematize the Bible. Certainly their authority, though, is granted by Scripture, and I think that's important for us to understand. That sola scriptura is that, is that Scripture is the, the only infallible rule. Church authority, though, is, is fallible. The interpretation of your pastor is fallible. Um, and that's important to, to know. It's important to remember and be reminded of, because I think we can easily get into patterns where we just, we just take people's word for it. And we start to treat other people's interpretation, even good interpretation, as though that's what's infallible. When it's not, Brad will err. I will err, right? We will err as we study the Bible for ourselves, as we apply it to one another. But, but, the, but Scripture does not err. There's a few, a few objections. I know we're low on time, but I think it'd be helpful for us to to think through just a few more objections, not necessarily misunderstandings, although some of these may be rooted in misunderstanding. One objection that is really the, probably the most common when we talk about sola scriptura is that people who really believe this are, are actually idolizing the Bible. It's, it's bibliolatry is the stupid phrase people use for that. And, and we have to sit back, because sometimes I think maybe we can, we can be idolizing the Bible. But I don't think it's because of sola scriptura, because I, I think that doctrine rightly understood should actually propel us closer to Christ, to worshiping him. We come to the Bible because we know that in the Bible, that's the only window we have into who Jesus is, to, to the mind of Christ. Yes, we have the Holy Spirit, but but my understanding of what the Holy Spirit's communicating to me is not infallible, right? The Bible, though, is. And so, so of course, I'm going to go to the Bible alone. But does that mean I'm worshiping the Bible? Or am I using the Bible to, to worship Christ? And if I'm using the Bible to worship Christ, if I'm coming to Christ through Scripture, shouldn't I really value the Bible a lot more than any other book? Shouldn't I really value the Bible a lot more than my subjective experience, maybe, of what the Holy Spirit might be doing in my heart? Yes. It's not bibliolatry. It's not idolatry if it's leading me to praising Christ alone. This is just another helpful, I think, point to make here is that all these solas that we talk about, they, they feed off of each other. They build on one another and, 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 and they form kind of a, a foundation, a five-legged stool. You pull one out, you really can't have the other four. What about this? Uh, well, the Bible doesn't tell us all that Jesus and the apostles taught, right? There are things Jesus said that surely were not recorded in the Bible. Right. <laughs> Yeah, oh, of course. I mean, first of all, that's not really what Sola Scriptura claims in the first place. Um, when we talk about Scripture, we're saying that what it has recorded is infallible. It's inspired. It's inerrant. It's supreme and sufficient for us. Certainly, there are things that Christ said outside of the Gospels. Certainly, there, there are things. In fact, we, we even kind of know, just based on the language of, of the Corinthian letters, that that Paul wrote to the Corinthians more than twice. 
Uh, there's somewhere in there a letter in between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians even. Because he, he refers to this letter and we don't have any context for it. Um, but, but that's not infallible because it doesn't exist. It's not extant. It's not around today. What we have... You know, and, and what is in Scripture, that, that, is, that is what we value. And, you know, the Bible doesn't tell us some of the things that we need to know about life in, in this world, about the, the, the exact, you know, uh, age of the earth. It's not very clear about that. I, I don't know. The Bible can't be trusted. You, surely you can't trust in the Bible alone because the, the, the Bible doesn't have anything to say about dinosaurs, you know, and, and what about this or, you know. But that, again, is it's not sola scriptura. That, that's not what sola scriptura claims about Scripture, that the Bible is the exhaustive concordance of all the knowledge that exists or can exist in the world. The Bible can be unclear at times, sometimes even on really important pieces of doctrine that, that we think we ought to know. You know, the word trinity is not even in the Bible. The word Bible's not even in the Bible. What, what, what do we do? Well, the fact that the Bible's not, not always clear, the fact that the Bible can't just be, you can't just take a sentence or a verse here and there and just paste it out there and say, look, here's the definitive stance on X, Y, Z, you know. Uh, that doesn't negate the, the truthfulness of the, of the word. What it does mean is that we're fallen, <laughs> and, and it only reinforces the fact that, that we ourselves are fallible. Now, this is where we kind of come into some of these distinctions that we even have as a church between things that we would consider closed-handed and things that we would hold with a more open hand. When we talk about, talk about doctrines like, like uh, w w the return of Christ, what does that look like? When is he coming back? Is, it, is, it, is there even going to be a rapture? Right? These are questions that we have from Scripture, and they seem pretty important to ask and to, to consider. But the Bible's not clear on them. That's not to say the Bible's not true, though. It's to say that we just don't always understand things fully. And we may never. But it certainly doesn't negate the beauty and value of, of Scripture for us. Let me just tell you a few implications of, of this doctrine. Implication number one, because of sola scriptura, the, the church's authority is dependent on the Bible's authority. Uh, you know, up until the Reformation, the idea was that the church decided what scripture was. That, that, that Genesis to Revelation, each one of these books was was deemed scripture by the church, which gives the church kind of the upper hand in terms of who's more important, right? But, but we don't believe that. We would say that the church, the church recognized scripture for what it was. The church didn't confer on scripture authority that it didn't already have. Uh, but the church rightly perceives the Bible for what it is. Uh, and, I, and I would love to talk more about that, but we, we just don't have time. Um, another thing here that, that Sola Scriptura, another implication of this is that the Bible is infallible, but the church's interpretation of it is not. And that's okay. 
And one of the beauties of the Reformation is that out of this grew the ability and, and the desire for people, for individuals, for, for laypersons to take up and read, to pick up God's word and study it for themselves. And yeah, one of, the, one of the consequences of that is that we have myriad denominations that have all divided on different lines. But you know, Sola Scriptura is not really to blame for that. In fact, if you really want to talk about denominational divides and schism, we actually have to go to the Roman Catholic Church, which split off from the Eastern Orthodox Church well before the Reformation even took place by claiming authority that it didn't have and establishing for itself rules of faith and practice that, that didn't exist until they decided it. All right, so, so believing in the Bible isn't, isn't necessarily a, a conduit for division and dissension, but, but praise God, we're allowed to think through Scripture. We're allowed to meditate on it for ourselves. And, and, and through, the, through, the, through the church, uh, through one another, as we study it together and, and bounce these things around with one another, we, we, we were able by God's Spirit to understand it better. It's, it's comprehensible. This is another implication using ordinary principles of reading. We started this How to Read the Bible class on Sunday mornings, Joseph Davis and I, uh, this past week. And, and as we're going through it, one of the things I realized as I was writing these notes for it was that um, really when it comes to reading the Bible, it, there's not a whole lot specific to reading the Bible. Um, but, but really, if you want to read the Bible better, you, you need to know how to read. <laughs> and the beauty is that Scripture can be read. And words have meaning in the same way that, that words have meaning in a Charlie Brown comic strip, right? We, we can come to it and we can see connections between words and sentences and paragraphs and big ideas. And we can come to Scripture and see the big picture of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. The Lord has been so good to us to give us something that we can approach. Finally, um, one of the implications of Sola Scriptura is that that there's a role now for, for preaching and for churches that has been radically and for the better changed. A major difference uh, that came about as a result of the Reformation wasn't just in terms of people's thoughts uh, or the books on their shelves or, or their theological heroes, but there were major architectural designs that came about because of the Reformation. So we have this pulpit um, prior to the Reformation, this would not have been center stage. You know what would have been center stage? An altar, right? Because the, the altar, the, the, the Eucharist, the, the celebration of the Lord's Supper, that was, that was primary. For a lot of reasons besides a lack of understanding of Scripture, and in particular the idea that by participating in the Lord's Supper, we're sacrificing Christ again and again and again. So, of course, they're going to make that primary uh, but, but after the Reformation, you know what starts to happen? Churches are rebuilt or redesigned, and they, 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 they move the altar out of the way. And they bring a pulpit and put it right smack dab in the middle. It's the biggest feature of the whole room. They start taking out icons and pictures and, and crucifixes and all these things that, that up to that point were kind of visual sermons for people. And they say, no, 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 the preached word, this is what is valuable for the growth of God's people, for the growth of God's church. 
And so then likewise, we today, as a result of the Reformation, can come in here on a Sunday morning and we can hear the word preached. We gather around the preached word. We sing the word to one another and to the Lord. We pray the word to, to the Lord. We, we hear scripture taught because it's the thing that we value because it's the one place where we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are seeing Christ for who he is. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you've given us scripture. I pray that of all the things that have been said, and, and certainly there has been a lot to think about, I pray that uh, the, the major takeaway here tonight would be that your word is, is, is so much more valuable than we oftentimes give it, give it credit for. Many of us have multiple Bibles, and, and, and maybe we don't leave them collecting dust, but, but even as we read, uh, maybe even on a daily basis, sometimes our hearts are, are numb and dulled by the cares and cravings of this world, by the opinion of man, which even though we would say the Bible is our highest authority, so often we allow the authorities that we perceive to be higher to, to rule our lives. God, I, I pray that we would value your word rightly, that you would stir up even in this church a desire to, to know you better through scripture. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.